Well, what a joy it is to be back with you. Thank you for your prayers. I can tell you were praying hard because uh, God truly blessed our time in Cabot, Arkansas. So again, thank you for your prayers. Uh, the churches that uh, hosted the fellowship, the five fellowship was uh, Bible Church of Cabot and Grace Bible Church of Conway. Uh, they did a great job. Uh, it was a wonderful fellowship. It's not a conference. It was a wonderful fellowship. And that's truly what it was. Uh, fellowship among God's people. It was truly encouraging. Uh, we were blessed. I'm pretty sure everybody in the family could say it, including boys. We were blessed by our time uh, in Arkansas, Cabot, Arkansas, at this fellowship. Today, I know I had said uh, before the uh, last time uh, I was here, before I left, I said that we were going to start Ruth, uh, but we're going to change it up a little bit. Uh, I felt that uh, I was so encouraged by uh, the time we spent in God's word in Isaiah 40. And so I want to kind of share that with us uh, for the next couple of weeks. Uh, we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 40 uh, all the way to the end. And, you know, and I, and I pray that you find it encouraging because Isaiah ends this chapter with this. He says in Isaiah 40 and 31, he says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I know many of us are going through trials and tribulations and sufferings and afflictions, and you may be weary and you may want to faint. But Isaiah 40 will encourage us with a great God, a glorious God who comes to us, who comes to us in Christ and comforts us. And throughout this, this, this passage, you'll see that it's all about God. God is our comfort. God is not what he does. God is our comfort. And that's our title here. God, our comfort. It'll be coming from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. So let's look at God's word here this morning. We'll be dealing with 1 through 5. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 11. Verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort. My people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, uh, uh, prepare the way of Yahweh. Let me put that in there because this is what this is God's name. here. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places 
a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. This is God's word. Be encouraged by God's word. Isaiah ministered to Judah. Uh, the southern kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, has already gone into captivity under the Assyrian, uh, the, under the Assyrians, and and the book of Isaiah, as he writes uh, to the people of God, it breaks down into uh, two sections, chapters one through thirty-nine, focus on God's impeding judgment upon Judah because of her sins. And it closes with a warning of what is to come. Look at chapter 39 and look at verses 6 and 7. And Isaiah is going to let King Hezekiah know what is around the corner for the people of God. In verse 5 of chapter 39, he says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till, uh, till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons whom will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And this is what's to come. Uh, Babylonian captivity is to come because of the sin of the people. In our passage today, as, it, as amazing as it is, it skips ahead a hundred years. It skips ahead a hundred years. Isaiah prophesied. God gives Isaiah this word uh, of deliverance, of salvation, of restoration, which comes in chapters uh, uh, chapters 40 through 66. Uh, God gives this word to Isaiah a uh, hundred years uh, before these things would take place. Israel was experienced God's judgment, but before this. And, and perhaps they will ask this question. If you read Isaiah 1 through 39, you, you may be left with these questions. Do God's people have any hope of salvation? Has God forsaken them? Are the nations stronger than God? Is God able? Who will save God's people? In chapters 40 through 66, answer these questions. And these chapters are primarily about God's future promise of deliverance, looking beyond into the uh, ba Babylonian captivity. And, the, and, and there's going to be forgiveness. There's going to be pardon of sin for the people of God in the future. And most importantly, in this section of scripture, Isaiah 40 through 66, we find uh, references to the Messiah, the suffering servant. He is introduced to us throughout this, this section. So Isaiah 40 through 66 is such a rich 
section. It has many wonderful truths for the people of God. But in our passage, God uh, is going to bring a word of comfort to his people, uh, a word about the restoration of his people. And so our text looks forward. It looks it looks forward to Judah's exile in Babylon. And during this time, God will come to his people. God will God will come to his undeserving people in their hopelessness and their and their inability to save themselves. God will overcome their failures. God will overcome their sins. God will overcome their enemies. And he will come and he will bring his people out of captivity to the great Babylon. This is what Babylon was known. They were known as the great Babylon. God, the great God will come and deliver his people from the great Babylon. And he will restore them to his, to himself. And he will do it in such a way that the world will see his greatness and his glory. And even though God does deliver them from Babylonian captivity, this deliverance that God will bring about is not their greatest comfort. The greatest comfort is Yahweh. Great and glorious Yahweh is their comfort. As Asaph said in Psalm 77 that was read earlier in verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? That's what that's this is what Isaiah gets at in this section of scripture 40 through 66 who is like our God this question will be asked because remember the people of God are sinning they're they're serving idols they're making alliances with the nations and and God comes in and says who is like me and I ask you that question today who is like our God that the doctors are not like God Your employer is not like God. Your spouse is not like God. Your parents are not like God. There is no one who is like our God. Hallelujah. Amen. And so this should bring us comfort. This is our comfort in a fallen world. This is our comfort as we deal with our failures in our sin, that God is God and he is with us. He is a God who keeps his covenant. He does not forsake his people. Let's look at the text. Let's look at the text in verse one. You should be comforted by God's message. And I, and, and I want to point out three things, three things. In, in this text, in our text, one through five, you should be comforted by God's message. You should be comforted by God's method and you should be comforted by God's motive. And we'll start with God's message in verses one and two. Notice. That this the, the, the message here is a command given 
by God. It, it is given as if Israel is already in exile. It's given as if uh, the hundred years has passed. And notice in our text, there are four commands. Comfort, comfort. That's two. Cry, speak and cry are the other two commands that we will see in our text. At the beginning of verse one, notice that comfort, comfort is repeated twice. Comfort presupposes something. It presupposes that they're suffering. And, and, and the comfort that is mentioned here, this is not comfort where you come and just sympathize with somebody. Oh, I know how you feel. You know, uh, sorry you're feeling that way. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a, a comfort that, that where someone comes and, and sympathizes. No, this comfort that is mentioned here, it is a strengthening. It is a, the, the, the comfort that God is calling for here is, is a, is a strengthening. It's strengthening someone from deep grief, depression, despair, distress, strengthening them into joy, building them up, encouraging them from being downcast, encouraging and building them up into joy, the joy of the Lord. This is what the comfort here means. It is an activity. Notice it does not say that there are people needing comfort. That's not the emphasis. Yeah, people are downcast. The people of Israel are downcast. They're suffering. That's not what God wanted to emphasize. The emphasis here, it is the call to give comfort. The emphasis is on the message of give comfort. Then it's a double command, which implies urgency, comfort, comfort. And it's a it's a it's a declaration of God that initiates an activity, an activity that wasn't going on before. The people of God were not being comforted. Why? Because they turned to the world. Because they turned to serve idols. They weren't being comforted. But here, God interrupts what is going on in their lives, the difficulties, and say, comfort, comfort. This points to the greatness of God. God takes the initiative. God is the one who speaks and gives this word, this command that this is to be done. It's, it's not about people. It's about God. God initiates this great activity. And not only that, God commissions and calls his servants to action, to give comfort to his people. And we're called to this as well. More, uh, Pastor Mark referenced this in his sermon last week. First Corinthians chapter one. Uh, as you were, I think it's second Corinthians chapter one. Verse four. God comforts us in all our afflictions. Y'all remember that? 
God comforts us in all our afflictions so that here's the purpose. Why does God comfort us in our afflictions? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any, any affliction, in any affliction, with the comfort with we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, God here initiates an activity of comfort. And he calls the prophets to comfort the people of God. He calls us to comfort. And John MacArthur said this in reference to God commissioning and calling uh, his people to this activity. He said, it's a paradox that sovereign God should depend upon men to carry out his will. God calls you and he is trusting in you to take his comfort with which you receive. He is trusting you to take that comfort to others. And guess what? If you disobey that, you're disobeying God. Because God commands it. God requires it. Look again at verse one where it says comfort, comfort my people. Again, this is a primary reference to God's people in future Babylonian captivity. They will be in captivity because of their sinfulness and their unfaithfulness. And it's significant that God calls them his people because at the beginning of Isaiah, listen to how God describes his people. In Isaiah chapter one, verse four, God says this of his people. He says this, all sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. This is how God described the people who he's calling my people now. Now, in fact, in Isaiah 6 and 9, God doesn't refer to them as my people. He says, this people. This people. These sinful, rebellious people. And here it is. God says, comfort, comfort my people. This people who are sinful, who have rejected him, who are going to be chastened by God, who's going to be enslaved as a result to the Babylonians. Many are going to die in captivity. Jerusalem will be in ruins. The temple will be destroyed. There will be no priests or, or the offering of sacrifices. My people will be chastened by God. And, and what we learn from Israel and, 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 and the fact that they turned their back on God and God chastening them something serious, that we learn that living in sin and rebellion against God leads to a miserable life. That's what we learn. If you're a child of God, if you've been saved and you're living in sin, 
your life is going to be miserable. And so their lives are miserable and God put them in a in a situation where they're it's, it's, it's going to be desperate. And remember, we remember we went through Lamentations. Y'all remember that study? If not, go back and read Lamentations. And and you'll quickly see the, the desperation of the people of God that are left in Jerusalem. They're in a desperate situation. And what's repeated throughout Lamentations chapter one is this refrain. Lamentations chapter one and uh, verse two, verse nine, verse 16, verse 17, verse 21. This is repeated over and over again. She has none to comfort her. She's living it. The people of God are living in sin. And they're trying to get, they've tried to get comfort from this, from that, from this person, from this king, from this nation, from this idol. And there is none to comfort her. Sin and its consequences can can overwhelm. And that's what we see. But God reveals his awesome greatness and that he comes with his word to his people while they're helpless. While they're helpless, while they cannot deliver themselves, while they are in their sins, God comes to them. And there's a purpose then for our suffering. God sends difficulties into our lives for you to learn to rely upon him because this is what it's all about. Israel are chastened by God so that they can turn and trust in him. And this is what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. After he said that God is the God of all comfort, God, the, he's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. In verses 8 through 10, he says this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt his 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 inner man. He 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 felt all the way to 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 his heart that he says we felt that we received the sentence of death. He thought he was going to. Uh, he and his companions gonna, was going to die. And then he says, he gives us the reason why God put them in a situation where they thought that they were going to die. Why did God do that? Why did God allow Paul and his companions to go through suffering even as they are doing his work of ministry? Why is it that God allowed that to happen? But that, he says, was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God see this is God is our comfort he is our comfort but he says not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead he delivered us from such a deadly peril and will deliver us on him he says on him 
that God will be God, that God is God. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. God puts us in desperate situations, situations we can't claw our way out of. We can't get out. We can't we can't we can't get our way out. God put us in those situations so that we will turn away from ourselves and trying to deliver ourselves to him. Look, look, look at look at the end of verse one. Come, he says, comfort, comfort, my people says your God. This is. Significant because the people are worshiping idols. And 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 uh, and the people will be in captivity to the great Babylon. Is is it over? Is Babylon too great for God? And it happened. My surface just died on me. Is it is 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 Babylon too great for God? The word that is used here for for God is Elohim. The 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 great God, the creator God, the God of Israel. Is what is being referred to here. He comes and he calls himself in relation to them. My God. My God, uh, your God, uh, your God. He comes and he is speaking here words of comfort. He's speaking to my people, sinful people, people who have turned their backs on him. Those who will come and and repent and turn to him. They are his people. And he says, your God, Elohim, the sovereign God of Israel is speaking. The same God that Paul calls the God, the father of all mercies and the God of of all comfort. It, it is he who is your God. He is the source of true comfort. And, and he graciously gives himself to his people, even though they have turned their backs upon him. And why would God do this? Why would God, have you ever asked that question? How it is that God could love someone like me? You should ask that question. You should be asking that question every day because it's a mystery. How is it that that this God, this great God who could have could have wiped me out when 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 I committed one sin? How is it that that this great and holy God who is so holy and so pure? How is it that he comes to a people who are sinners. Well, God was, he had made a covenant with his people. He was in a covenant relationship with his chosen people. And this is the foundation of the comfort that he gives here. Note the covenantal language. Notice the text. It says, my people, your God. This is, this is covenantal language. This is God speaking uh, to his covenant people. God has not given up on his people. He hasn't. They're still, he still sees them as my people. His love for them has never 
weakened, even though they didn't love him. Even though they turned them back on him, God did not forsake them. And he continued to love them even when they sinned. And guess what, beloved? If you're in Christ, God has not forsaken you. He will not forsake you. How do we know that? Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 9 says this. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. Nothing will be able to separate you who are believers. Nothing is able. Nothing has the ability. Nothing and all nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. James Montgomery Boyd said this in reference to this verse, he says, quote, there is nothing in all the universe greater or more steadfast than that love. End quote. That there's nothing more steadfast than that. Nothing in all the universe can separate us from God's love. No wonder he comes to his people who is who have sinned greatly and turn against him over and over again to the point that he had to chasten them. No wonder he comes back. No wonder he comes back and calls them my people. Because nothing will separate God's people from his love. And because of his love for us in Christ, he would not forsake us, even in our struggles. Even as we deal with sin in our lives. The comfort that God gives us is that I am with you and I love you in Christ. In verse two of our passage, God commands his messengers. To make his message of comfort unmistakably clear. They must ensure that everyone hears it. And he doesn't want anyone to miss what he has to say. Sort of like the Great Commission. But look at verse two, where it says, speak. This is the third verb. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Literally, this reads, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. And notice something here. God doesn't say, Rebuke my people, Israel. Do you see that? He doesn't say rebuke my people, Israel. He doesn't say speak harshly to them. He doesn't say remind them of their sins. He says speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And here we see God's tenderness toward his people. He he meets them where they are. In their sin, in their pain, in their suffering, and he meets them with compassion. God's messengers, therefore, must speak 
to the people's heart, they must speak with tender and kind words in order to assure them, in order to encourage them to embrace God's purpose for them. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And we too, brothers and sisters, must minister God's word of comfort with tenderness, with compassion, with understanding to the people we seek to minister to. And we must minister to their hearts, meaning we must be genuine. We, we must, when we say, when we give a word of encouragement, we must mean it. It has to come from the heart. If it's not coming from your heart, then you don't even need to say it. Because you're not being like your God. And this, this implies that we have to cry out to God to give us the right kind of heart in order to minister to others, to give them the comfort that they need and to do it in a way that is genuine and real and comes from who we are, comes from our inner being. Minister to the heart, speak to the heart, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. But I can tell you, brothers and sisters, it can be hard loving fellow sinners, can it? It's hard loving fellow sinners when we take our eyes off of God and his word and begin to focus on ourselves, on our disappointments, on our unmet expectations, on the sins of others. When we begin to take our eyes off of God and focus on such things like Moses, the man of God, the great man of God who acted harshly in anger and frustration when others didn't listen to his counsel. And God says, speak to the rock. And out of anger, he goes and he strikes the rock. And God was still merciful to Moses. There was water that still flowed out of that rock. God was merciful to Moses, even though he acted in rebellion. That rock was Christ. God does the same for us. Even in our sin, as we minister and with, with sinful intentions, God is still merciful. Because it's about him. Clay Warner says this, he observed, quote, talking about the difficulty of ministering to others. He says, one look at Jesus. Listen to what he says. One look at Jesus hanging on the cross will teach you that if you make a conscious decision to deeply and sacrificially love sinners, it's going to hurt something awful. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt to love your fellow brother and sister. Because you're a sinner, they're sinners. We're all sinners. And we must remember that we need the same mercy and grace in Christ as those whom we serve. No one is outside of God's grace and the, the, the needing of God's grace and mercy. All of us need it. So he says, Speak tenderly 
Then he adds, and cry to her. Speak tenderly to the heart and cry to her. The message of comfort must be cried out in confidence to provide assurance. It must be proclaimed boldly, calling for a decisive response with a, a sense of urgency. We, we cried out, even though we speak tenderly, there's a sense where we, 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 we provide assurance and we, we, we proclaim God's word boldly, God's word of comfort, God's word of the gospel, proclaim it boldly. He says, and cry to her. There's a sense of urgency in this. I want to, brother or sister, to, to have this, this, this comfort that God, that God wants to give to you. I want to encourage you with this, this comfort of, of the, the, of, of the gospel, the comfort of, of, of God's truth. I want to, I want to encourage you with this. And, and it should be, uh, uh, speaking tenderly, but, but a sense of also crying out, you gotta get this. I want you not just, I want you to get this. There's a, there's a sense of urgency that God calls these messengers to. And, and the, the message of comfort is the, for them, for God's people, that salvation is coming. And, and it's a threefold comfort. And basically, you can sum it up this way, that, that her sins are dealt with. That, that, and this is no work of her, of her own, that, that her sins would be dealt with. Notice first that the comforting message is that her warfare is ended. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. So sovereign God will free his people from their hard time of captivity in Babylon. And hallelujah, God has done the same for us. We're not in Babylon. We weren't in Babylon, but we was in we were captive to sin to the kingdom of darkness in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says this he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 God has our God has the warfare that that we had with God where we were enemies of God God has delivered us from that. God came and he changed our hearts and he renewed us and, and we were born again. We were made new creations and he took us out of the kingdom of darkness and put us into the kingdom of his son where we experienced nothing but grace upon grace. And now we call from hearts that have been changed. We cry out to God, Father, because we've been delivered. The warfare is over. And so the comforting message is that uh, number one is that her warfare is ended. And also it includes that her iniquity is pardoned. The iniquity, the wrong, this bent to do 
to to go this this they just are are crooked people who are bent to do sin. They can't help but to do sin. And the passage here says that her crookedness, her wrongness, her iniquity is pardon. Pardon of sin. And we have to say this uh, here because pardon of sin does not depend on our payment of sin. Uh, it doesn't depend upon our ability to pay the penalty of sin because you and I cannot pay sin's debt. <laughs> we can't. We were dead in trespasses and sin. So dead people can't do anything. So think about what God is saying here to his people. And 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 notice also uh, that is her iniquity, meaning that she brought this about in, 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 the, in the previous where it says cry to her that her warfare, she brought this about. She brought Jerusalem. The people of God brought this warfare about. Her warfare, her iniquity, her sins, uh, which we will discuss here in a minute. She brought this about. And yet, God pardons it. And how is it? We have to ask the question. How is it that God will pardon or forgive the iniquity or the sin of his people who rebelled against him? Well, this is where the suffering servant comes into play. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. And uh, Isaiah makes many references to the suffering. He introduces us to the suffering servant in chapters 40 through 66. And this is one of the, the well-known references to, to uh, Jesus Christ and what he would do in regards for uh, saving us. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs. Griefs because of what? Because of our sin. And carried our sorrows. Sorrows for what? Because of our sin. Living in sin brings grief and sorrow. And Christ, he says, surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that bought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his way, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All here is to is, is those who are the elect, those who turn to God in repentance and embrace ultimately his son, his way of salvation. God's justice demands that every sin and sinner be punished, and God uh pardon was, was pardon 
Israel's sin, uh, the people, the remnant that would turn to him, return to him uh, in faith and confidence and trust. God, uh, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter three, verse 25, that God passed over previous sins committed. Why? Because he put Christ forth as a propitiation for sins. He put Christ forward to show that this is justice. I didn't pass. I didn't I didn't I didn't look and turn a blind eye to their sins. This is what their sins demanded. This is the payment. This is the this is the payment of their sins. When Christ was lifted up once and for all uh, for sins, he was lifted up not only for our sins, but for the sins of the saints of the Old Testament. How it is that God can say her iniquity is pardoned because he will lift up Christ. Romans chapter three, verses 24 and 25. And lastly, the comforting master said that she received the from the Lord's, from Yahweh's hand, double for all her sin. Sin is missing the mark. And it's, uh, and what this is, uh, is saying is it doesn't mean that Jerusalem suffered enough to pay double in punishment for her sins. Again, we, 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 can't, we, we can't pay for our sins. There's nothing that we can do to pay for our sins. And, and simply what God is saying here is that that Jerusalem has paid a great price for her sins. And that her time of chastening is over and he will require no further, no, in a sense, no further uh, uh, chastening for her sin. So that she has received double from his hand for all her sins. And so there's going to be a time where her suffering will be over with her suffering because of her sin. And again, this has nothing to do with the people. It has all to do with God, because Isaiah 43 says this, Isaiah 43, verse 11. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no savior. There's no savior. Outside of God. And so this points to God's greatness and his glory that he's able, that he is, is willing and able to to do this for his sinful people. And can I tell you, God is savior. There is no other savior. You can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do to change. the. If, if you are unbeliever here listening uh, as well, there's nothing that you can do to change your status of your warfare or rebellion before God. God has to come in and change your life. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through nine says this for by grace. Even for us who are saved for by grace, you have been saved. Through faith, through faith in Christ. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast.
Let's look at verse three. And here we'll see you should be comforted by God's method. God is coming to his people. And it begins with the voice of one who cries in the wilderness. Look at verse three. In our passage. It says a voice cries and we're not told who this voice is. It is a message that is uh, it, it is the message that is important, not the voice that cries it out. So we're not told who this voice is, but we know in the New Testament it applies these words to John the Baptist. Matthew chapter three. Matter of fact, all the Gospels uh, apply this to John. Matthew chapter three, verse one and three. John chapter one, verses 19 through 23. <clears throat> but it, it is applied to John in the New Testament. But but here it is a voice cries. And 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 what w- would take place when a king uh, when a, when a king traveled, someone would go before them and prepare the way, prepare the way for their for their coming. There would be servants that would go and clear the path and they would prepare the way. And, and notice it, it says a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight. In the desert, a highway for our God. Preparations must be made because Yahweh, our God, is coming. Just imagine if you're the people suffering. Again, go back and read Lamentations. You're the people of God and you're 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 in a desperate situation and 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 you hear this is going to come to God's people while they're in Babylonian captivity and and they're suffering under uh, uh under the servitude in in Babylon and here it says Yahweh is come prepare a way this imp- first this implies that he left we know that he his his he left his spirit left the temple Left the city of Jerusalem, Ezekiel 9 through 11. But now he is coming again. He's coming again to his people. There is no presence of God in a sense, uh, a manifesting uh, manifestation of God's presence with his people through uh, the, 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 uh, the tabernacle, through the offering of sacrifices, through through the, the priesthood, through through the Ark of the Covenant, all of those things, that, that, that there is no reality of God's presence among his people. All they know is suffering. And here it is. God says to them, prepare a way. I'm coming again. I'm coming. And the preparation that is called for, it's not physical. Of course, God's not going to say clear trees and all of that. So I it's a spiritual, it's a spiritual preparation. And the way here to be prepared for God is in the human heart. The obstacles to be removed are those of human sinfulness. Yahweh is coming. Yahweh is coming into their wilderness of their lives and into the desert of their hearts, into the place. He's coming to the place where they experience weariness, He's coming to the place where they experience despair in your heart, in their heart, where no one can see, in the place where they're struggling. No one can see the struggle. God says he's coming. 
and the Israelites must make a road for the Lord and remove the obstructions that stood in the way and prevented fellowship with him. Look, let's look at, 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 at this uh, just a little bit deep. Isaiah 35. Just turn there real, real quick. We're going to look at Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 57. Isaiah 35, verse 8. I'm talking about the heart and God's work in the heart. And because what is what is God calling for? Isaiah 35, verse 8. Notice what it says. A highway shall be there. And it's referring to the same thing that Isaiah is referring to here in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called, notice, the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. This is pointing forward to, uh, no doubt, to, to Christ who fulfilled God's righteous uh, requirement. And what is required of God is holiness. And Christ, Christ, uh, he lived a, a, a righteous life that met God's requirement of holiness. And this is what the law does. It exposes that we're not holy. It, we're not holy. And, and, and the, the way to be holy is to go to Christ, turn to Christ. Turn to Isaiah chapter 57, verse 14. It's a way of holiness. We just can't come to God with our own righteousness because our righteousness is filthy rags. We have nothing to offer God. Isaiah 57 and 14. Notice what it says. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction for my people's way, from my people's way. And notice who's speaking here. For thus, and, and, and notice the contrast. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Who is that referring to? God. He is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity. Whose name is holy. Notice the trans notice the the transition notice no notice what he said this guy who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity whose name is holy i dwell in the high and lofty place this is where i dwell and and not only do i dwell in the high and lofty place there is somewhere else I desire to dwell. And also with him. Who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Why? To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contract. Those who embrace. Who they are before a holy God. God says that I come near to you. Not, 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 not that he comes near, that he comes down to us. 
but he brings us up to him. Where does Paul say our life is? In Colossians chapter three. He says, set your minds on things above where your life is hidden with Christ in God. God who is holy, who is eternal, who is majestic. He said, I desire to dwell. I come and I dwell. I bring up to me where I am. I bring them up to the place where I am where they can dwell with with me. I'm about to start running. God says those who are broken, as Jesus would say, those who are heavy burdened and heavy laden under their sins. God says, I, I come to you. And my desire is to dwell with those who understand that they're broken, that they're sinners before me. And I come and, and, and in Christ, I come and, and, and I live with you and you live with me. God is who is high and lofty. He dwells with, with us through his spirit. God says, I desire to dwell near the contrite and lowly. I'm not there to punish. I'm not there to punish you. I'm there to revive you. And eventually this would be lived out, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. It was Christ that read this uh, at the, uh, the, uh, in the temple. He read from Isaiah 61. He, he read this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, the poor in spirit. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, brokenhearted over their sin and to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who know that they have been captive to sin and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Christ is the one who brings this about enables God, holy God, and sinful man to come together and to fellowship again. He prepared the way. He is the way. Verse 4 of our passage shows that every obstacle will be overcome. There is nothing that will keep Yahweh from coming to his people and delivering them. Every valley shall be lifted up, the low places. Every mountain and hill made low, the high places. The uneven ground shall be level. Everything will, the, the mountains will be brought level. The valleys will be brought up and made level. Uneven ground will be made level. There will be no obstacles that will keep Yahweh from coming and saving and restoring his people. Is anything too hard for God? Is there a such thing as a person being unsavable? We act like that sometimes. We act like people are unsavable. We don't want to take the gospel to them, particularly when it's when 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 their personalities uh, seem like that 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 to us that they're that they're outside of of, of God and they're outside of His saving. 
But if God has chosen them, if they're the elect, God will save them. There, there is no, and that's the confidence we have taken the Great Commission. Our confidence is this, is that there is no valley, there is no mountain, there is no uneven ground that will keep God from saving this person before us. If they, uh, uh, if God chooses to save them, there is nothing that will keep God from saving them. That's our confidence. That's our only hope. Look at verse five. And this is the last thing. You should be comforted by God's motive. What is the motive? Why is it that God is going to come to his people and, and deliver them, restore them, even though that they've sinned before him? Why is it that God is going to do this? Is it for them? No, it's for his glory. Verse five, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. The glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. Yahweh's glory, the sign of his presence and power, the manifestation of his character and the unveiling of his attributes will be seen by all. He will be seen that he is mighty, that he is mighty to save. What he will do with Babylon when he deliver his people will be uh and 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 analogy of what God will ultimately do through Jesus Christ. He will send Christ, who is the exact representation of his nature, that he is the word made flesh, that in Christ we see God's glory most clearly. And he says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all will see it. And it will be true. All will see God's glory. Either they see it in Christ and they come to Christ in salvation or they will see it in judgment where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, all will see that God is, is glorious in his salvation. And even they see it in us for those who are saved. As we walk around, God is, is displaying uh, the reality of his grace, his saving grace. Which I, uh, which Paul uh, points to in Ephesians chapter two. I didn't have this in my notes, but uh, Ephesians chapter two, Paul says this. Listen, listen to Paul. And why, why it is that he saves us. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Actually, I'm going to go back in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why does God save us? So that he would show, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Do you praise God for that? That God, in a sense, is putting you on display. We're lights, right? That you're, we're, we're lights that, that are not to be hidden. God puts us on display to show forth his grace and his mercy through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And why would God do that? Why would God reveal himself and his greatness and his glory so that everyone can see it? Going back to our passage. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's greatness and his glory will be manifested through the rule of his word. And God has spoken it. Remember, this is a hundred years before the nation of Israel go into captivity. And God said, this will happen. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 11 says this about God's word. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in that for which I sent it. So God can command things to take place before they take place and they happen. And these things are, are done to give us who looks back on these things comfort that if this God is our God, we can be sure that his purpose will come about. That we can trust his word. When God commands us in his word and he commands us for our good, we can be sure that if we obey God, if we, we, we are sincere and we obey him in the way that he desires for us to obey, it's for our good. And he will be glorified. And, and most importantly, as we go through suffering, the people of God, they, they will receive this word while they're suffering. It helps us to understand that there's purpose in our suffering. That, that you, for, for Israel, sinning and being chastened by God, it, it looked terrible. You read through Lamentations, it was, it's, and Ezekiel, as Pastor Mark been taking us through Ezekiel, it is when God comes and he judges his people, it's a terrible thing. 
It's a terrible thing to behold. But you know what? It's a necessary thing. It's necessary. Why? Because it is through judgment. That salvation comes. It is against the backdrop. The black backdrop. Of what God has done to his people and their sin. That God's salvation is clearly seen. As it is. As glorious and great as it is. And so there's purpose in our suffering. This is what this teaches us. Israel suffered harshly at the hand of God. But God would come to them again to restore them, to break them of themselves and to uh, because they had turned their back on him. And for us who are believers, believers, God, God promised to be with us in our sin and our suffering to comfort us and to give us the grace to endure. And so what what comfort it is to know that in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of pain, in the midst of grief, in the midst of guilt. And come on, be real with me. When you're going through difficulty, don't you struggle? Be real with me. Are there times when you question God? Be, be real with me. Are there times when you feel like God has forgotten about you? Be, be real with me. Don't, don't sit here and, 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 and not be, be real with me. Are there times that you feel like you're forsaken? That you feel like the, the, the pressure, the darkness is squeezing in and there is no way out and all you can do is cry? Be real with me. This passage offers us comfort and says God has come. God comes to his people. God has come to us in Christ. He has come to us in Christ. He met, he met us where we are. He didn't ask us to do anything because we could, we was helpless. And even now, and even now, God comes. He, he has come and he has brought us near to him in Christ. And he's not condemning us when we struggle. It's important that you get that. As you, at times where, where God does put on you more than you can bear and you're crawling on the ground and you're like, God, I can't go anymore. God is not condemning you. He's still loving you. He's loving you even as you're on your face. This is and, 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 and why does he love us? Because he's God. Because he is who he is. He's God. And there is no other gods in our lives outside of him. And he wants us to realize that. He wants us to realize that all I have is God in Christ Jesus. That's our comfort. That's our comfort. Nothing else. Deliverance, 
from thyroid eye, eye disease is not comfort. Deliverance from a kidney stone, that's not comfort. Deliverance from arthritic pain in the body, that's not comfort. This is your comfort and my comfort. God is God. Hallelujah. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, you need to check your heart. Because it's not beating for God. Let us pray. God, you have a way of making it unmistakably clear that you are our hope, our only hope. You make it unmistakably clear that the only peace we have is the peace you give us in Christ Jesus. Because you send times of suffering and affliction into our lives that break us. That, and this is the blessing. It breaks us of ourself, our self-sufficiency, our self-independence, our selfish desires, our selfish ambition, our selfish expectations. You send trials and sufferings into our lives to, to, to wake us up and to break us of those things so that we can take our hands off of clinging to those things and turn to cling to faith in you. And yes, Father, we do. We, 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 there are times where we want to hold on things other than you. But you and your love for us, you love us so much that when we turn from you to broken cisterns, you come into our lives and you dry up those cisterns to where we thirst and we thirst for no one but you. And I know the struggle is real for many of those who are hearing my voice. And they need your comfort. They, they, they need to understand what it means to know you in such a way that it comforts their heart. And I pray that you would do that, that you would enable eyes to see and hearts to embrace that you are, that, that they can say in their lives that God is my rock, that he's my rock, that he is my fortress, that he is my God, that they can that they can make a proclamation of, of, of the reality that you and them are in relationship through Christ personally, that you are theirs and they are yours. And we won't make it. We won't make it if that's not our declaration. We will faint. We will faint under troubles. We will we will faint uh, in in despair, under affliction. If you if we don't see you right, and so Father, we thank you. We thank you for helping us 
through the this ill this this reality this this historic reality uh that you came to your people in their time of desperation you came to them and comforted them with your salvation and so we thank you in christ's name i pray amen